Welcome to Rainbow Colored Glasses, a podcast that looks at LGBTQ media of the past and asks what it means today. I'm Paul, my guest is Derek, and we're discussing the 1998 film Gods and Monsters. Ian McKellen plays James Whale, the Hollywood director of such films as Journey's End, Showboat, Frankenstein, and Bride of Frankenstein. He's retired now with only his housekeeper for company. Brendan Fraser plays Clayton Boone, Whale's hunky new yard man. After a clumsy attempt at seduction, they strike up a sort of friendship. Bill Condon adapted the screenplay from Christopher Bram's novel, Father of Frankenstein. It is not a biopic, but beyond that, it's hard to classify. There are elements of historical fiction, drawing room comedy, and even erotic thriller. It's not a plot-driven film, but we will be discussing the ending, so here's your spoiler warning. And it gets dark, so I'll throw in a trigger warning as well. Derek, when did you first see this film? I first saw this film probably about a decade or so after it was released. Uh, you mentioned that it came out in 1998. So for me, I, w- I was a 12-year-old, uh, which certainly I, w- I was I was a budding young queer, but I wasn't... Uh, all up and up on current queer cinema. But when I got to college, that was sort of like my awakening, right? You know, uh, in terms of the classes that I was taking, uh, the the people that I was starting to mingle with. I was a theater major, so I was just among other artists. And I I also, that's around the same time that I I became like an Oscars aficionado. So about like mid-aughties, suddenly I was just looking back and I was looking for, you know, what were the films nominated for acting categories, uh, which this was for uh, Sir Ian McKellen. uh, And then also like, what are the queer films of the last however many years that that I've missed? So I was kind of playing queer catch up and this was part of that. What was it like seeing it again? Different. I love this movie. I remember liking it when I first saw it. Also recognizing that even then in my early 20s, I've always been aware when I wasn't quite like ready for a film yet, but rewatching it uh, in your sense and specifically watching it to um, prep for our chat tonight, I love it even more. Uh, it's it's so nuanced. Uh, it, it, it's such a, a striking mix of symbolism between James Whale's life and also the, the films that he created. And I really appreciate what Bill Condon and the team did in terms of an almost like better than it needs to be screenplay, uh, certainly better than it has to be editing for a biopic. The way that they treat memory in the film as almost a monster unto itself, you know, something always threatening to invade, what what was really striking to me. Um, But also the way it kind of just that memory works like breath. It just comes and goes and it's, it, and it's edited in such a, a, a stark yet seamless way between past and present. And just as someone who's got, you know, 10 more years of, of film watching under my belt, I just, I, I really appreciated it. McKellen, that was my introduction to Ian McKellen. And it's such a juicy role. It's a mix of Norma Desmond and King Lear, the way he's <laughs> recounting his Hollywood glory, but he's succumbing to dementia and he's reliving his trauma from the Great War. He just gets to play a little of everything here. And it's interesting because it's Wales' last act, but it was the start of a new chapter for McKellen because soon he'd move into Lord of the Rings and the X-Men and be introduced to a whole new generation of audience that didn't know his theater work. And he's so 
meticulous. One thing that stood out for me on this last watch was just a shot of him primping his hair in the mirror because he, he says he was working class and now he's imitating his betters and so much of him is this ingrained performance of sophistication but the the sort of vulgar party boy keeps slipping out (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i love what he's doing so much in the in this movie uh for me uh, gandalf and lord of the rings was certainly my introduction and i was a a huge x-men fan as well but i i think probably when i when i saw this it, it was part of a like oh wow like a Richard the Third. I'm trying to think of some other you know mid to late '90s things that he was doing because he didn't do a ton of film. You know he was such a theater guy, and so some of his earlier performances, I'm struck for. I'm always struck by how handsome he is at every age. He just has such a a handsome face, and I think I mean that free of <laughs> sexual attraction. It is just a, a, a handsome face and in this movie specifically like to see him jump back and forth in time and maintain all this just wonderful nuanced work in his face i think he uh what i was you mentioned the the primping of the hair for me it's in his eyes i think he does an incredible job of balancing um, uh, a really nimble play between presence and absence when um, james whale is very present in the scene, uh, he, he's vivacious, he's full of life, he really lights up the room and he's magnetic and also very sensual. And then Ian McKellen can just let all that just fall away so quickly when he disappears into a memory. So it, almost as if James Wells' eyes are working like a camera coming in and out of focus is what it kind of reminded me of, just that he's so there and he's so... He's so um, honed in on Brendan Fraser's character or another character in the film, and then immediately it can just it can just pull away. It just sort of pulls back, and we're taken back to the past with him. And I, I thought that was just a really great use of the eyes, which is something we can you can't really get in theater unless you're doing a very up close and personal, like immersive experience. But for film, that just being able to isolate that area of the face, I just loved it. I have strong memories of McKellen's performance from back when I first saw this in 1998. But the one I've been trying to pay attention to on a rewatch is Brendan Fraser. Fraser is about to have a comeback in The Whale, oddly enough, where he plays a suffering queer man. And there's been some controversy as to whether that type of story is what we need to be telling these days of the gay man who suffers and suffers. And But Frazier confuses me in this film. Uh, Ebert, Roger Ebert said he was miscast, that they should have cast someone who would have had some sexual chemistry with McKellen as an element of danger. But with Frazier, he's sort of the audience and audience surrogate for McKellen's one-man show, but then he gets these occasional moments where we're supposed to get insight into what exactly he wants from McKellen. Does he want a mentor? Does he want a friend? And I see the hint of something there, and I can't figure out whether it's Frazier's greenness at that time or whether it's just that the screenplay doesn't really want to let us in his head what what does what do you get from clayton boone not a lot (laughs) 
Well, no, what's interesting, uh, the way you were just describing it, sort of, you know, what they wanted, it, it sounds like what Roger Ebert wanted was a Dickie Greenleaf, which is who Jude Law plays in Talented Mr. Ripley, where it, there really is a tension all the way through that relationship of will they, won't they, will he do it, just will this, uh, you know, quote unquote, straight man allow something to happen with this other queer character just because he's so vain and loves being the object of affection. I actually really appreciate that what Brendan Fraser and what Clayton Boone, you know, through his portrayal is doing. Uh, and it, it's not that I, there's never a moment in the film where I think something might happen. And I do think that may be Bill Condon's intention is that the audience is able to see that, there's nothing there. There's no. There's no chemistry. There's no, no sensuality. No connection, of that type at all. And that James Whale can't see that, you know, as maybe part of the tragedy. Or I don't even know that I think James Whale sees that. Yeah, I I, I like that. That's not there, uh, because it's very different. We get the contrast in one of the opening scenes of the film where a young. Um, film student comes to, I believe he's a film student, uh, comes to James Whale's mansion to interview him over lunch. Uh, and there's an immediate recognition of, from James Whale that, oh, this is someone I can play with, you know, and he, t he turns the interview into a game of like strip poker almost. And because we get that, I think what we get from, from Clayton Boone and Brendan Fraser is intentionally not that. I think. I mean, it could all. I look like a, like a real just like surface reading is just like yeah, he's miscast. He has no charisma whatsoever. He's George of the Jungle, but with a different haircut. But I I think there's a little more to it than that. Okay. Well, it's interesting you bring up Jude Law because the one I thought of was Daniel Craig, because Craig has played the sort of artist muse in two films. In Love is the Devil, he played the rough trade lover of uh, Sir Francis Bacon. And in Infamous, he played uh, the prisoner that Truman Capote is obsessed with, who ends up sort of drawing him in with uh, the promise of sexual favors. And in both cases, Craig's not playing the sort of innocent that Frazier's playing. He's been knocked down by life. He's been around the block and so forth, but uh, is definitely closer, I think, to almost the sort of Tennessee Williams character that Ebert may be describing. So you offer those Daniel Craig performances, and I will I will throw Jude Law back in your face and offer um, the Hustler in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and uh, Bozy in in Wild. Which there we go. Yeah. yeah, yeah, perfect, perfect. And but it's it's very intentional what they're when when you cast Brendan Fraser, you're going for something different. But uh, I don't always know if Fraser knows what that is. Okay, that that I. I agree with. And I, I actually think that's why it's successful. I think if Clayton Boone is in control of it more than Brendan Fraser is, it may not work. It, it's almost, um, there's sort of an aloofness to it or a, a, an obliviousness or a naivete to him not even realizing what he is physically, you know, and that gets back to, you know, some of the symbolism of the monster. Like he doesn't even realize like what he's physically capable of. And we get a little bit of that in um, scenes with him in the bar with, you know, more, more people of his class, you know, a, a, a woman, a bartender played by, uh, it's like Lolita Davidovich. 
Um, but, you know, her and a few of the other bar patrons who are a little more, you know, working class, if that's the right word for it. Um, but even they comment on how, you know, the majority of life just goes over Clayton Boone's head. You know, he barely participates in his own life. And so I think there's something to that. You know, there's a, there's that sort of, you know, going for that Boris Karloff, Frankenstein's monster. I say very simple sentences. I don't connect intellectually that I think works with Brendan Fraser, that wouldn't with someone who's a little more in control of their sexuality and they're just like how they, you know, like a Jude Law, Daniel Craig, uh, they ooze too much on screen. I like that. Well, let's talk about the ending then. When I first saw it, it took me completely by surprise. And then on a rewatch, I see they start dropping hints midway through the film. So uh, here's your, here's your big spoiler audience. James Whale is losing his mind to dementia after a series of strokes, and he decides that he wants Brendan Fraser to mercy kill him. And the way he goes about this is by sexually assaulting him in order to provoke uh, violence. It's a very shocking way to end what has been a fairly restrained film up till that point, and it recontextualizes their whole relationship for both the characters and the audience, in part because Frazier does not respond the way James Whale wants him to. He's he's not a killer. He's not a monster. And so Whale is uh, ultimately pushed to do himself in, in a very Sunset Boulevard-type ending, floating in the swimming pool. So very, very downbeat ending to a film that had moments of levity, as he says about his own films. He says he makes comedies about death. What does this ending mean for you? I don't think any viewing has it surprised me. It's always seemed slightly inevitable to me. Uh, I get, Thank you uh, for laying it out like beat by beat. <laughs> so lovingly, <laughs> you know, like there, I, I guess there are a few beats in there, like the, the, the specific turns that, that caught me by surprise, but that he would, that by the end of the film, James Whale would be dead, possibly assisted by a quote unquote monster of his creation kind of seems, if not inevitable, quite likely. <laughs> and yeah, you, you laid out that they start dropping hints a little earlier in the movie that 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 may happen yeah it's so it's so dark i it was actually a lot funnier this time watching it well in part because this last uh, viewing for me was the first time i have seen gods and monsters since having seen bride of frankenstein for the first time i had never seen that movie until this year in our kind of annual Halloween horror movie watching, we were finally like, okay, Bride of Frankenstein. Every year we say we're going to watch it. Why not? It's barely 75 minutes. And my goodness, is that a great movie? Oh, it's just so wonderful. And so then getting to come back and watch Gods and Monsters, there's just such an added layer. It's not required watching to enjoy Gods and Monsters, but it certainly lays in a, a lot of fresh colors having just watched that movie. Well, they have that lovely scene where they watch it on the television and they talk about the themes of the film, which, of course, are also the themes of Condon's film. 
and it's a it's a wonderful scene. It's the first indication we get of an intellectual bond between Clayton and Whale, because they see the film in ways the rest of the audience doesn't. Yeah, could you imagine <laughs> being in a bar? you know, full of patrons and asking everybody to hush while I watch this movie. <laughs> um, I know, And then of course, you know, in three minutes in, you know, they're making fun of it and you're trying to have this like significant experience with a piece of art. I, <laughs> just, But the audacity to like force a bar to watch it all the way through. Um, but no, I, I, I agree. And I, I really like that scene. And I love all of the, the parallels, not just in the themes, but in the, um, the gestures, the looks, a lot of the production design of what's happening in the present, specifically parrots, a lot of what we later see um, on the set of The Bride of Frankenstein. And I think the, the bounce back and forth between the two is, is just lovely. The waitress says, scary is scary and funny is funny. And watching Clayton come to the realization that a movie can be both. He's, he's getting his very first lesson in camp. <laughs> oh, I, I know. That's, uh, there, there's something that I, that I felt about watching it this time. The way Clayton is trying to relate to James Whale and his films. Or even explain to his friends, you know, that I just, I just met this incredible person. He's a Hollywood director. He directs these movies. And how they sort of belittle it, it really just reminds me of what I imagine. It, it's certainly been my journey at some points, but several artists' journey of trying to communicate what we do to lay people or to, you know, to non-theater people, to non-artists. Um, non um, civilians. Civilians, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to muggles. But, but really just that. You know, and because so much of, um, you know, creative work is that stretch into the imagination that some people honestly are just like too busy or too tired or too wrapped up in the everyday. You know, for some people, it's a luxury, you know, so so I think of, you know, going home between college, between college years or even try to talk about like a show that I worked on and I'm, whether it be to family or friends from my hometown or people who have a nine to five or whatever, whatever the case may be that you can just, I can just see it in their eyes. Like, okay, this just isn't connecting in some way. Like, you know, to me, this was like an incredible life changing theatrical experience. But when I try to describe it to someone else, it just doesn't connect in that way. I'm watching Clayton try to connect with Bride of Frankenstein and James Whale, and then communicate that to some of his peers just feels like such a similar journey because and, and he's immediately dismissive of them right okay you don't get it you're too dumb for it you know don't worry about it and we see whale go through that with his parents in flashbacks as well they don't understand why their working class son wants to paint pictures well and uh even him discussing his type of, of movies with other people with uh, who is it george kukor that, yeah. that they they go to his house for a party uh the film student you know, the way they talk about his movies sort of all throughout the film, they're curiosities, they're, they're oddities, and they're not mainstream, they're not highbrow, they're silly little things. Uh, but what the film shows us, what Bill Condon's film shows us, is, is, is how beautiful they are. I love the way the scenes from Bride of Frankenstein are shot, the, the on-set scenes. Um, also, like, shout out, and I didn't do my research to see who it is, but I, I love the score for this this movie. I think it's it's very thoughtful. It's it's comforting in an odd sort of way. It ebbs and flows in the same way that memory does. It just feels very appropriate for the piece. 
and complements some of the more um, abrasive, you know, horror sounds that we hear throughout the film uh, really, really well. Agreed. Agreed. Although sometimes I think they lay it on a little thick, but it's a better, it's, it's a matter of taste. Yeah. Well, well, same, you know, the, the, the very last, you know, to be somewhat critical uh, in this last watch, I was like, okay, we, we, there may be one too many bows on the, on the symbolism here. Like, you know, it, it's, it, I, I, I like it and I don't think it crosses the line, but it definitely approaches the line and, you know, dances along it a little bit just in terms of, um, you know, how many times we say the word monster, how many times we refer to the things inside of us and the monsters being here and pulling lines from uh, Bride of Frankenstein into the movie. Uh, I love that threading uh, that it does, but for some reason on this watch, especially toward the end, I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. We get it. He's a monster. He's a monster. He's the, <laughs> He's the monster. I get it. Who would you recommend this film to today? Several people. <laughs> a handful of people. Um, film buffs, for sure. I think there's enough in Bill Condon's filmmaking and certainly in Lynn Redgrave and in McKellen's performances to just recommend it as a, oh, if you just like good scene work or great performances or really skilled performers doing what they do, I think there's worth there. Um, but outside of that, I, I, I think there's enough sort of behind the scenes of Hollywood. You know, like if you if you like your Sunset Boulevards, if you like your Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just kind of love a, a, a movie that could at any moment take you to a back lot and just show you some behind the scenes Hollywood stuff. This is great. As far as, uh, you know, queer film aficionados, I, I also think it's a complex enough storyline that even though, you know, at this point it's... 25 years old you know i i think there's still some 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 stuff happening uh in the screenplay and specifically in the um sort of chemistry between our lead three that i don't recall seeing in many other films so i feel like there's some nuance of relationship and and queer portrayal and also certainly right now you know it's 2022 i think <laughs> and there's a big conversation about authenticity and casting and seeing sir ian mckellen uh, an openly queer man get to play james whale uh a closeted queer man. I think there's some some worth in that. It's certainly one of the highest profile performances that Ian McKellen's been able to do, and for him to be able to, you know, represent not just a, one of the earliest uh, Hollywood filmmakers, but one who uh, was going to have a lot of queer influence as Bride of Frankenstein has. Uh, is pretty great. And interesting trivia, I believe McKellen is still one of the only queer actors to be nominated for an Oscar for playing a queer role. That's very correct. <laughs> yeah. I mean that uh, to circle back to I think your first one of your first questions, what was it like watching it again? You know, I don't think I had the the nuance of thought when I first saw it to really appreciate him in that role, but it really is lovely to like go back and watch it and get to see Ian McKellen in this role, uh, specifically as a, as a queer man and knowing that he was Oscar nominated for it. And, uh, you know, depending on who you ask, should have won the Oscar for it, but, but just uh, critically acclaimed across the board, lots of accolades and just to see him get that for what I assume was such a wonderful opportunity for him. Uh, you can just tell he's having such a great time showing all of the like, <laughs> 
queer shades that we don't always love to see on film. I mean, like James, his portrayal of James Well, it's nasty. He gets called appropriately so a dirty old man at one point. It's not an always likable character, uh, but uh, you know, human beings aren't. Uh, queer queer human beings are just as complex as 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 straight ones and. Yeah, getting to see him just really enjoy himself from beginning to end in a really great screenplay. It's just, yeah, it's a bit of a gift. So now I've talked myself into it. I want to recommend it to everybody. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me and getting me to watch this film again. It's it's been a real treat. And with both Halloween and Frasier's upcoming film, I feel like it's a perfect time to revisit it. Thank you for listening to Rainbow Colored Glasses. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Glasses Rainbow. The music you're listening to is Squares, licensed under Creative Commons. If you like us, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.